0: In honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 11 through 19. I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I'm nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden. For I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for the parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of these Those whom I sent to you, I urged Titus to go and send a brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act with the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves? It's in the sight of God that we've been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So continuing in 2 Corinthians uh, and Paul's case against these false teachers that have done so much damage to the church in Corinth um, to see through, help the believers see through their false teaching and and their accusations. The previous passage shared the many ways in which Paul had suffered uh, to deliver the gospel to the churches and how his weakness made way for God's strength to work through him. We saw that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Verse 11 again, I've been a fool for you forced me to it for I ought to have been commended by you for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. Now, If Paul's not inferior to the super apostles and he's nothing, what does that make the super apostles? Paul reiterates here for the fifth time that this effort of comparing ourselves with others is foolish, but he feels forced to do it because the Corinthians were listening to the false teachers boast of how they were superior to Paul. And instead of speaking up for their founder and all that they had seen him do and seen in him, all those uh, gifts of the Spirit and and the demonstration of the fruits of the Spirit, they allowed themselves to be persuaded by the skilled rhetoric of the false teachers. Uh, I think one of the best ways we describe it in English is they were slick. So having now foolishly in quotes shared his credentials with uh, against those of the false teachers paul can declare that the corinthians were duped into missing the fact that paul was not at all inferior to the men who he sarcastically calls super apostles i think paul didn't say he was superior to them because paul himself had written that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god Then he says, even though I am nothing. And in that statement, we have this balance um, of sharing what God has accomplished through us, testimonies, what he's done in us. And on the other hand, that without him, we're nothing. It's putting things in perspective, that Christ is all. It It says, Paul wrote, not to think of yourselves more highly than you ought to, but to judge with a sober judgment. We are nothing. Jesus is all. But wonder of wonders, he invites us to work with him and he works through us. We don't deny what he's done, but we don't boast as if we were the ones who did it on our own. All glory goes to him because he alone is worthy. Then we read that he will share, Jesus will share his glory with us. And we're rightly overwhelmed with the wonder of his love and grace. I am nothing, he says. That's the beginning of wisdom. That's the beginning of turning from self to God and to leaning upon him for strength. Just as the Corinthians had so underestimated Paul, in a much greater way, we underestimate God and his wonders all around us. You know, the, the psalmist said in 103.14 that we are but dust. God remembers that we are but dust. As a, a doctor in male Uh, Dr. Mayo of the Mayo Clinic, humorously described what we consist of. He says, enough potassium for one shot of a toy cannon, enough fat for seven bars of soap, enough iron for make a medium-sized nail, enough sulfur to delouse a dog, enough lime to whitewash a chicken coop, enough magnesium for one dose of medicine, enough phosphorus for a few boxes of matches. That's what we consist of, Eh, some carbon and water. If we could harvest all that from our remains, it might fill two grocery bags. (laughs) But we are worth much more than that. We are made in God's likeness. We have incredible potential, but without God, we're just dirt. Our value lies in the fact that God has set his love upon us and given us a soul that has the freedom to reject him or yield to him. Even to yield him, though, starts with him graciously moving in our hearts. This need to recognize how helpless we are without him is illustrated in a number of biblical accounts when moses and the israelites were standing before the red sea and the army of pharaoh was pressing up on them behind them bearing down the israelites were whining about being brought out into the wilderness to die to be buried so it's because there wasn't enough land in egypt and moses said to the people and i'm quoting from exodus 14 13 and 14 fear not Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which will work for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. In other words, quit your belly aching and watch God work, right? A similar situation happened with an innumerable a uh, coalition that came to attack Judah under when he was under the it was under king Jehoshaphat and this is from 2nd chronicles 20:15 and the prophet spoke to to the nation and he said Listen, all Judah inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid, do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. So when they went into battle, King Jehoshaphat, put the Levitical singers in front of the army. You know, usually you put your your mightiest men up front. He put the Levites up front to sing praises to God. Crazy? No, he had faith in what God had spoken through the prophet. And he realized that without God, their army was nothing. But with God, they were undefeatable. So no wonder God spoke through the psalmist and said, Be still and know that I am God. There's a greater army attacking us. An army that would have far outnumbered that so the Egyptian army or the one attacking Jehoshaphat and the nation, Satan and his legions. And we can only be still and have faith in what God has done for us on the cross. Amen? He already won the war. So I'm asking us who are each about two boxes of matches, five bars of soaps, a bag of sulfur, lime, iron, and magnesium, and phosphorus, what's your true value? It's that the Lord has set his love upon you. Verse 12, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you, with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. The false teachers apparently performed no signs that confirmed their authority. The reason God worked signs and wonders through the apostles was to convince the world that the truth had been revealed in Jesus Christ. It was the evidence that they were truly God's representatives, his ambassadors that's why those miracles were done in his name and that's why signs and wonders are still done in areas steeped in animism or islam or any faith that needs to be exposed as powerless the first time signs and wonders is mentioned in scripture is the lord telling moses how he's going to deliver israel from the egyptians through signs and wonders (laughs) every plague exposed the Egyptian gods to be a curse. And that's why a great number of Egyptians left with Israel in the Exodus. In Corinth, the Greek and Roman gods were exposed as being powerless when signs and wonders were done through the Apostle Paul. Paul says these were performed with the utmost patience. I believe that means God is patient with our refusal to hear and believe. Jesus said an evil and adulterous generation seeks after signs, but God is patient with us. I believe he gives everyone in whatever culture we live in, in whatever time we live, what we need to be convinced that he alone is the Lord. But many will still reject him. A Pharisee named Nicodemus told Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And yet, all but one of the members of the Sanhedrin voted to have him executed. We know, but we don't want you. <laughs> The signs that Jesus displayed were predicted to be the works of the coming Messiah and the ruling council of Israel were religious leaders who knew Jesus was fulfilling those predictions and yet they chose their positions and power over the God they claimed they were worshiping with all their strict religious routines. The signs they saw and the scriptures they knew will only serve to condemn those who chose the world over Jesus. I believe it's often the mercy of God that that there are not more miraculous signs seen as people who choose not to believe would then be even more accountable than they already are. Remember that Jesus told those three cities in which he did most of his miracles that if Tyre and Sidon and Sodom had seen what took place in their towns, they would have repented. Verse twelve, for in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. So in writing that Corinth was not less favored than the rest of the churches, Paul is saying that signs and wonders and mighty works performed in, in Corinth were at least as frequent in other cities where Paul started churches. You know, and, until I studied this, I never realized what was being said here that everywhere Paul started churches, God used signs and wonders to help those in, with a pagan mindset to understand that these were true representatives of Christ. And yet we read a very few of these incidents in scripture. When you read Acts and the, letter, the letters from the apostle, he rarely mentions any miracles or signs or wonders performed through his hands. We read of a demon cast out in Philippi, which resulted in Paul and Silas being imprisoned. We read the heal man, uh, the man born lame was healed in Lystra. And then they worshiped Paul and uh, and his companion as gods. But then a few days later, they stoned Paul. <laughs> and there's the sweat cloth that, uh, Paul's work cloth that got passed around and apparently de- people were delivered from demons and healed if they just touched it. But the expression in this verse means miracles and healings were a frequent occurrence during the founding of most churches. Why didn't he write about that? It's because it isn't the main thing as wonderful and exciting as signs and wonders are the main thing is lives transformed a church being formed a beachhead for the kingdom of god in each city where the gospel's proclaimed you know if in our culture if there's a sign or a wonder or a miracle that's all we talk about and that may give us a clue as to why we don't see that happen more often i've witnessed I've personally witnessed instantaneous healings, but I've also later seen a person who was healed later pass on to glory. The healing was for the greater miracle of the person coming to faith, becoming a new creation. The signs and wonders in Egypt were to open the eyes of the Egyptians to the true God, but also to deliver the Israelites from Egypt, which is a picture of, of every individual who comes out of the world system into the kingdom of God. The miracles led to the greater miracle of the Exodus. If there's no change in the heart after seeing a miracle, we're only more accountable on the day of judgment. And consider the the people that left Egypt. Almost all of them died in the wilderness despite seeing those 10 plagues. The last part of the verse is Paul apologizing for not asking for support. He says, I myself did not burden you. Forgive me this wrong. It's an example of having to choose the best over the good. We're often presented with alternatives that really are all good. But when we listen to the Lord, we can discern what is best. Paul's choice to support himself exposed the false teachers who were demanding support. And yet, that choice caused the church to miss out on the blessing of supporting the ministry. When we contribute to a ministry, we are part of that ministry, and we are rewarded for the fruit that comes from it. Jesus said, the one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet— will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives righteous person because he's a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he's a disciple, truly I say to you, he will in no wise lose his reward. That is an amazing promise. But it says that when we support other ministries, we share in the reward in heaven. Paul didn't let them have the blessing of and the reward of contributing to his ministry. He surely did that at the leading of the Holy Spirit, which resulted in exposing the critics and enabling the church to see his sincerity. And it was an example of working hard to contribute to others' needs. The only way we can know the best when presented with many good options is to pray and to get the Lord's leading. Verse 14, here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you and I will not be a burden for I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for the children. Paul had spent a year and a half with that new church in Corinth and he returned for a very short and very contentious visit visit. In this verse, he promises a third visit. And during his visit, he promises not to be a burden. And I think he's clearly referring to his commitment not to receive any support from them for his travel as as he adds that he's not seeking theirs, but them. And unlike the false teachers, he doesn't care about how they can benefit him. He's like a father to them and good parents do not care what their children can do for them, but what they can do for their children. Parents want to see their children become successful and stand on their own. That's Paul's desire for the church in Corinth. But the false teachers want the Corinthians to become dependent on them. The great commission is to make disciples. And disciples are those who learn of Jesus and tell others about him. We want those whom we disciple to grow and stand on their own with a relationship with the Lord and with the knowledge of his word. False teachers and cult leaders want their followers to depend on them. Paul will visit them again for their spiritual maturity and he seeks their good and nothing for himself but faithful service to his Lord. Verse 15 I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Paul's expressing the heart of God who loves us enough to see his son suffer and die for our salvation. There's no greater love. He was glad to work long hours for their sakes. He was willing to pour out his life for them. They witness the dedication and his heart for them. And we witness the heart of Jesus for us when we look at his death and resurrection. He gladly let his life be spent for the salvation of our souls. We exist to receive that gracious, overwhelming love of God. Isn't it a wonderful thing to think that's why God created you? to be a recipient of his incredible love. And love begets love. The more we receive it, the more we love him. We can avoid that love because we know if our love for him increases, then we're going to prefer what he wants. That's why we sometimes avoid prayer. Prayer that lets him speak to our hearts and speak that love to us. Paul asks if, for some reason, that's not the case with the Corinthians. Does his soul, love for them not produce love in their hearts for him? Does it cause them to love him less? That would be unnatural. And yet, I know I have witnessed it. You probably have too. Yet, I know at the same time, it's not personal but rather the allurement of the world that when heated results in a spirit of criticism to justify rejecting God's love. That's because we don't want to give up being our own Lord. Verse 16, but granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? So the counter to Paul's um, willingness not to receive support from them was that he was somehow being crafty and tricking them to gain an advantage over them. They were suggesting he was making them feel indebted to him and he was going to gain somehow from them. But if that was the case, what did Paul He's asking, or any of his team get from that indebtedness, except to serve them even more. Sometimes a question as to exactly what is meant clarifies the issue. Verse 18 I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Titus went with another brother uh, to collect the offering for the church in Jerusalem. And they went together because that would assure nothing would be used personally, that Paul also would not handle the money, and that the one would keep the brother would keep the other accountable. Paul knew he didn't that Titus didn't take advantage of them because Paul knew Titus's heart. We read the letter to Titus, in which we can see that he didn't send the brother with him because he doubted Titus, but to abstain from any appearance of misconduct. And then Paul asks if he or his team did not act in the same manner. He may be referring to his last visit. And again, Paul knows he never gained anything but fellowship from them. And he's asked them, asking them to put his testimony, the testimony of his life that he lived among them alongside that of the fault, the super apostles. Verse 19. Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? It's in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. Paul is certainly defending himself against the claims of the false teachers, but not for his sake not for them to think more highly of him. Paul's purpose is that before God and in Christ, he shares what God would have him share for their upbuilding. It's for their sake, not for his reputation. It's to build them up, not him, which is another complete contrast with the false teachers. Why do unbelievers project on others what they're guilty of? Have you ever noticed how common that is? It's because they are convicted about their own behavior and believe that everyone else must be guilty of the same. In our passage today, we've seen that recognizing that we are nothing is the way to real strength, to let God work in and through us, to cause us to depend on the Lord and his strength. We saw that being small and seemingly insignificant invites the power of God so that he gets all the glory. And that oftentimes in our battles, we just need to be still and watch God work. We saw that miracles are not a priority and that choosing the best over the good takes discernment and prayer. And finally, we saw that the integrity and sacrificial spirit of those who serve God, putting others ahead of themselves because they truly believe it is more blessed to give than to receive. Amen? Amen. Jill, would you lead us in a closing song? And then I'll give a word of benediction.